Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, the three C's. For much of Eastern European history, that's meant chaos, conflict, and conquest. These days, it's a new initiative to link the Adriatic, the Baltic, and the Black Seas, and it's just added Greece as its 13th member. So is it a genetic freak of good intentions that will die naturally, or is it the start of something altogether more toothy, a new kind of US dominance in Eastern Europe? The IRA is pumping money into the US economy, Meanwhile, over at the Fed, Jerome Powell is tightening the screws. It seems like fiscal and monetary policy in America are operating at cross-purposes. So is this macroeconomic black magic designed to cast a love spell over the US electorate? And now, the Saudis have announced that they want to take oil back up to $100 a barrel. Is their proposed spike a counterspell to blast Biden out of the beltway? But first... Sea to Shining Sea. This week has been the Three Seas Conference. That's not C as in the letter C, but C as in the smaller version of an ocean. The Three Seas Initiative is holding its conference, and it has admitted Greece as a new member. Recently, we've spoke about the BRICS and their expansion. Well, the Three Seas Initiative is also expanding. Greece is a new member, and Ukraine and Moldova are coming on borders as associated nations. I think this is interesting because I get the feeling that very few people will have heard of the Three Seas Initiative, what it is, who's a member. So I think we should cover that first and to really understand it and where it sits in the world and why we want to speak about it on multipolarity, we'll have to go into a little bit of history as well. So what the Three Seas Initiative is, it's a forum of Central and Eastern European nations that connect the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea, and the Adriatic Sea. So you've got Romania, Croatia, uh, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, the Baltic nations as well. And their hope is to uh, provide a forum for increased regional diplomatic and economic cooperation, but crucially also to try to generate investment, external investment and investment from themselves to construct logistics links and and general economic links on a north to south axis between the Adriatic, the Black Seas and the Baltic Sea. And to understand why they want to do this, why Poland is is the leading, the, the, the driving force behind this three seas initiative what we need to do is we need to do a little bit of history now in the 16th and 18th centuries uh, poland was at the center of a vast eastern european empire uh, called the polish lithuanian commonwealth many of our listeners will have heard of that but it really did cover a huge swathe of on the eastern approaches of europe pretty much all of modern day poland big chunk of modern-day Ukraine, the, the the kind of the western part, right down really to the Balkans, and as far east as, as Smolensk on the far west of modern-day Russia. So it was really a very large, you know, very large empire indeed. But starting from the late 18th century with the 1772 first partition of Poland, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth collapsed and Poland really ceased to exist as a as a sovereign nation state from the late 18th century, as, as Poland was, or the former territories of the Polish Empire, so to speak, was divided between uh, the Russian Empire, the Prussian Empire, and the Austria-Hungary Empire, um, and that really continued. Uh, you know, Poland ceased to exist really as a, as, a, as an independent sovereign state until the end of the First World War. So that's a 
kind of long time, it's kind of 1918-1919, and then Poland was reconstituted as an independent state. But as many listeners will know, one of the problems with the with the Versailles settlement after the First World War was that really these new nations, like, I mean, I say new nations, but the, the nations created after that, like Poland, like Czechoslovakia, they weren't really economically or militarily strong enough to be truly sovereign and to have true freedom of maneuver, sandwiched as they were between the two 800-pound guerrillas traditionally in Europe, which was Germany and Russia, or as it was then the Soviet Union. And of course, very quickly, all of those countries lost essentially their independence, first to Nazi Germany and then to Stalinist Russia. And it was only really after the collapse of the after the collapse of the Soviet Union that these nations regained their full independence. However, in that interwar period, it, it, it was well known that these countries weren't quite uh, powerful enough to be to be uh, fully sovereign and uh, fully independent, effectively as well as you know de facto as well as de jure. You know, de jure, of course, they were sovereign nations, but de facto in kind of facts on the ground, the ability to actually do it. It was well known that they weren't quite strong enough. An, an idea to essentially reconstitute the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth on more modern terms was put forth in the interwar years. And in 1922, a Polish statesman called uh, Pilsudski, I, I, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Josef Pilsudski, came up with this idea of the intermarium. And if you can imagine, it, it was very similar to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in scale. And the idea is that by uh, forming a new kind of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth called the Intermarium, these countries would lose their sovereignty and independence, but they would they would finally have the kind of the mass, the, the economic, the population, and the military mass to stand up to both Germany and Russia. And if one looks at the map, of the three season initiative, it's pretty much exactly the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the uh, Intermarium. And I, I think it's been driven by Poland, really, because they understand that, you know, like a lot of countries in Eastern Europe, they've had a much harder time establishing themselves and maintaining themselves as a nation than perhaps we Anglo-Saxons would appreciate. Britain is surrounded, of course, by the seas. It's separated from continental Europe by the seas. It's always been quite powerful. And for, you know, a good thousand or almost as many as 2,000 years, it's been an independent sovereign nation. The same with the US. It's really away from any potential dangers. It's protected by two vast oceans. Whereas in Eastern Europe, that's not the case. And, and, and these countries have a very keen sense of the precarious nature of their position on this broad, open, flat land, especially Poland, with its history of, of ceasing to exist not once but twice, and also sitting between Germany and Russia, the two traditionally the two most powerful nations in Europe. So what is the Three Seas Initiative? As I said earlier on, it's really an effort for these countries to to join to well not join together so in terms of sovereignty but to come together to be able to discuss ways that they can further integrate it, it started in 2016 people know it only a year or two after the uh, russian annexation of crimea and the idea was to start to create more north south linkages where traditionally linkages in europe have been east to west so the idea was to do things like build gas pipelines that would go north to south instead of east and west. The same with oil pipelines, build electricity interconnectors to link these countries together rather than going east to west as, as well. But also to create um, logistics hubs and logistics routes to build ports, rail lines, motorways, new stations, new interconnectors that would allow them to link the Baltic, the Black and the Adriatic Seas and to cooperate more and to slowly come together as more of a block. So that's what the Three Seas Initiative is. Greece has now joined as well. Philip, you have some opinions on this. What are your thoughts on this? 
Well, I have some kind of uh, ill-informed opinions, I suppose. I, I didn't know much about the Three Seas uh, initiative. I'd heard of it um, because I'd been in Central Europe before, but I didn't actually know really much about it. So I suppose I can kind of tell you the economics of it from a kind of a zoomed out point of view, somebody just approaching it. Well, the first thing is the size, right? It makes up about 14%. So the countries that are currently in it make up about 14%. Maybe it's 15 with Greece or 16, but 14, 15, 16% of European Union GDP. They make up though about 25% of the population. But ultimately, if you assume that these countries are going to grow very rapidly in the future, which are which is the baseline assumption for Central and Eastern Europe, I have no objection to assuming that, although we'll see. It's it's speculative. If you assume that they're going to grow up to Western European standards with 25% of the population, logically, they'll become about 25% of European Union GDP. So that's really as big as they can get in and of themselves. So as uh, in terms of world GDP, they're currently sitting at about 2% of world GDP. And if, you know, by 2030, they grow into grow into up to Western European living standards, we're probably talking about 3.5% of world GDP. So the first thing to note is this is not a big economic block. It's not the EU. It's not the United States. It's not China. That's the reality of it. It's not huge. So then you kind of, the next step in it is what is this supposed to do? Now, as you say, from the information I looked up, it looks like what you're saying. It's about building infrastructure projects. Okay, well, the EU does that currently. That's kind of the EU's role. The EU has a time-tested track record of doing that. You can go to a country like Ireland and see very impressive EU investment there in the buses and the trains and so on. So the EU can do this. And so they're saying, okay, well, we're going to raise the capital and we're going to do this. Okay, so is that possible? Yes, but it sounds like it's going to step on the EU toes. And when I was looking into this, I did come across a Euronews headline, which is, for people who don't know, Euronews, it's a pretty good news source, but it's very pro-EU. You can probably tell from the name. And the headline on this from 2020 was, is the Three Seas Initiative an American-funded alternative to the EU? So a little bit of a spiky headline there, a little, little bit of a leading question. You can probably tells you what the EU think of this. So if the Three Seas Initiative are going to get involved in infrastructure pro- programs, that may be good for the countries involved. It's always good to have infrastructure rather than not having infrastructure. But it seems to me that they're going to run into conflict with the EU because they'll effectively be poaching on their preserve. And if you know anything about bureaucrats in, you know, investment banks or whatever, <laughs> it's kind of a they're like mobsters. It's kind of territorial with them. So so that's immediately striking. But the second the second broader point is what what is it really supposed to be? I mean, if you look at the at the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth idea or the intermarium idea, it, this was a military thing, right? This was this was being talked about after World War One. It was in the interwar years. It was it was thought of in military terms. And when you're thinking in military terms, you're thinking in terms of geography. That's the way your your entire mind is is geared. You're thinking in terms of supply lines, you know, energy, you know, as you say, electrical grids, all these kind of things. You're thinking about military strength, and then you're thinking about where that military strength and block is placed. I'm not convinced that's the world we live in. I know we have a war in Ukraine, and maybe we'll talk about that in a moment, but I don't think that's fundamentally the world we live in anymore. I think post the nuclear bomb, effectively, the world we live in is one in terms of economic power. And if this if this aspires to being a you know a loose knit group that try and like agree on projects that run through them, now I'm not clear why they can't do that through the EU, but for whatever reason that they don't do it through the EU, if that's all it is, okay, we're going to agree on rail lines and electrification and all that. Sure, go for it. But that's pretty limited. Now, if it aspires to being some sort of economic block the numbers aren't that convincing. It's not really big enough, so far as I can tell. So it's a it's a little bit of a riddle wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a question mark or whatever that phrase is. I, I can't I can't wrap my hands around it very solidly. It's kind of metaphorically based on an interwar idea that was perhaps created for a time when nuclear weapons didn't exist. You know, I don't know. Maybe you can explain it to me. I'm I, again. I'm I'm not that familiar with the project, so that's my overall kind of macro sense of it. Yeah, I think the important thing to understand 
with this is it's very much a geopolitical beast. It's not necessarily an economic one. It's not necessarily a, a military one, although those two issues are intimately tied up with each other and with geopolitics. So, you know, it is, but as a secondary consequence. The point of this is that <clears throat> countries in Eastern Europe have traditionally faced this choice of being subsumed into empires to the West, either the the Habsburg slash Austria-Hungary or the German Empire, or subsumed into empires of the from the East, the Russian Empire primarily. The idea is to, you know, ultimately for these countries, the ideal is to gain enough mass, as I said, to be able to stand on their own two feet. Now, the interesting thing about the present is that the biggest kind of dog in the global room, so to speak, the United States, also has an incentive to really bolster the power and the strength of these countries between Russia and Western Europe. The US has a clear strategic imperative to prevent Russia and Germany starting to develop close economic and from this economic cooperation develop close military or military and diplomatic ties together because that really would end up dominating Europe it would it would deprive the US of its of its land bridge onto the Eurasian landmass and it would be an extremely powerful unit even if it was just a very loose alliance or an economic partnership they would have have the size and scale to be able to make decisions on their own uh, on their own two feet so one of the things that the us has always been likely to do is try to separate germany from russia but you know given the fact that the eu might not last forever and especially given the fact that the us is likely to start drawing down its presence in Europe so it can focus on China, it's likely to replace military and kind of hard diplomatic power with an effort to bolster regional allies who can serve its geopolitical aims. And one of those allies is, in fact, Poland. So what sort of support is likely to help? Well, financial support to help Poland develop, financial support to help Poland develop links that don't involve either Germany or, or especially Russia, and also military help, military equipment, technology transfer, all of the things that the US has traditionally done, and in fact Britain did before the US as, a, as an offshore balancing power. And indeed, the US is really quite in favor of the Three Seas Initiative. It hasn't started pumping huge quantities of money in yet. A few years ago, the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation through $300 million at the project. Now, to you and I and probably our, our listeners, you know, $300 million is a huge amount. 1% of that would be a huge amount. But in terms of infrastructure, it's no big deal. You know, it, like if it was $300 billion, then yes, that would be a big deal. But it's a start, and I think it shows that the U.S. is interested in this. And I think the U.S. would like to see Poland strengthen its position because it's inimicably opposed to Russia. It would provide at least some sort of bulwark against Russian influence, a bulwark against the re-emergence of Russo-German cooperation. And I think for that reason, the U.S. likes it. Obviously, Poland likes it as well because if the, something like the Three Seas Initiative can take off, it provides a kind of a hedge against any weakening of the EU. And we know that, you know, this, the EU centre in Brussels and Poland, Hungary, and a few other Eastern European countries have found themselves increasingly in conflict with each other in recent years. So it's, a, it's perhaps a hedge against that. But also, if it can take off, of course, Poland would be by far the most powerful country of this grouping. You know, with the best will in the world, Poland is a bigger and more powerful country than Estonia, than Romania, than Croatia. So essentially, it would be the the leader of a kind of a postmodern empire, if you like. Of course, it wouldn't be an empire in the same way that the EU is not an empire. But ultimately, it would give Poland a lot of power, and it would serve a lot of Poland's geo geopolitical purposes if this sort of thing can take off. And as you say, a lot depends on the regional development, if these economies can continue their, their, their current pace of growth, which has been 
faster than the West as they catch up. But, you know, that's what this is about. It's a geopolitical matter rather than a economic or financial or, you know, military alliance, right? But I want to kind of nail this down because everything, every time I look into this, it's like, you know, hunting the snark in a sense. It's like, you know, trying to, the cat trying to chase the laser beam. Like, what is it? Like, okay, so the EU was a coal and steel union first, then it becomes a political union, then it becomes more and more an economic union, and eventually it becomes a monetary union. Okay, it's pretty clear what the EU is, the plan for the EU was laid out pretty clearly when the the notion came to be so very specific like very specifically what what is this is it a is it an economic federal union is it, it does it want to be a monetary union or is it just a loose military alliance in which case how is it different from nato i just no, no, I, I mean I, I i don't think it's any of those things i think it's much more it's much more similar to something like something like, say, the African Union or the G20 or the BRICS. Okay, it's a forum in which these countries can discuss their shared interests, discuss areas where they could cooperate, try to agree on areas where a united front would give them greater power, even if it means compromising with each other internally, and it also gives them a way to to try to rationalize some of their own plans for infrastructure, try to find and plan ways through which they can increase the logistical throughput bilaterally and, and, and multilaterally within these countries, and also perhaps secure financing through the initiative itself, see if the initiative itself can have its own projects, for example. You know, like, I don't know, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Croatia – could all get together. They could all put some of their own money in. They could see if they could get international organizations like the DFC, the Development Finance Corporation of the US, which I mentioned earlier on, to put their own money in the you know their own money into it. And by doing that, I don't know, build a huge motorway from Gdansk to Dubrovnik, for example. And you know, I think that's. The, the sort of thing it is. It's certainly not a military alliance, certainly not a true diplomatic alliance like the European Union is. I mean, the European Union is, it's almost a confederation at this stage, I would say. However, in the future, that might develop into something more. Who knows? I think it's very wise for these countries to try to build these kind of blocks. For instance, the Visegrad 4, or I might be pronouncing that the Visegrad 4, I'm not sure how to pronounce it properly. Excuse me, Central Europeans. The Visegrad four countries, what they try to do is by coming together within the European Union, give themselves more of a voice on the European Council because as smaller countries, both economically and in terms of population, they don't have the, the individual voting rights. And they do have quite unique uh, unique and different perspective on politics, on, 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 on culture, on, on social issues, certainly, to the Western European countries. And, and, and by doing that, they come together. But what is... Visegrad. Well, it, it's kind of nothing really. It's a maybe it's a talking shop, maybe it's a united front for the European Council. But I, I think it's sensible for these countries to build these relations because we don't know what's going to happen in ten years, let alone thirty. And I certainly think it makes sense geopolitically from their point of view to try to build more, more north-south corridors to to allow themselves to integrate more with each other rather than being kind of. You know, in America, you have the flyover states when, you know, people go from L.A. to New York or the East Coast to the West Coast, the, the elites, so to speak. You know, I don't think these countries want to continue just being the kind of the transit states, like states that gas has to go through from, you know, the vast Siberian resources to the to the European powerhouse of manufacturing in Germany, right? Like, like you know, they want their own linkages. They want their own economic growth and development. They don't want to just be transit nations so you know i think it makes sense but like we've like you and i have said with bricks philip let's not try to make it into something it's not a couple of weeks ago a week ago we you know we said look don't try to make bricks into this like vast and comprehensive anti-western alliance no it's not and nor is the three c's initiative a kind of a eastern european nato no it's not nor is it an eastern european eu no it's not nor is it a kind of a, an alliance or a kind of a postmodern empire. No, it's not. 
But who knows in 50 years? Who knows in 30 years? Well, hang on a moment. Now, okay, so I'll accept that this is something resembling bricks, okay? <clears throat> so the Visegrad group makes a lot of sense to me because it's a political, maybe it's a political talking shop, if you want to call it that. But basically, the idea is to exercise power in a block formation in the EU parliament. That makes a lot of sense to me. If, you, if you're like-minded countries or you're in a certain region and you say, well, we're smaller countries, Germany's big or France is big, we'll have this little talking shop and we'll get together and try and influence through the quasi-democratic process in the EU parts of EU legislation and so on. That makes a lot of sense to me. This doesn't because this is an either-or situation. And in that sense, it's very like the BRICS. You're correct. I don't believe... I don't think you believe that the BRICS is an explicitly anti-Western alliance, but it is an alliance which is poaching on the preserve of the Bretton Woods system. And that's why it's so interesting. The BRICS is saying with its with its BRICS bank and everything like that, we don't want that. We don't want the IMF World Bank system anymore. We don't want the Bretton Woods system anymore. We're doing our own thing. And if you guys want to want to interact with us, that's fine. And if you want to create a new Cold War, we're good for that, too. Okay, so that's a that's a very clear line of de- demarcation where you're saying we are breaking off from the post-war institutions, not, not fully, but largely, and it, it, it is seen as a challenge by those institutions. Now, it may work for the BRICS because the BRICS are absolutely huge. We, we cover it on the show. They have all this access to huge amounts of resources, manufacturing, things that are just absolutely central to the global economy. And that's why, in my estimation, it's a potentially credible project. The issue here is that the Three Seas Initiative appears to be poaching on the preserves, as BRICS is poaching on the preserves of the IMF and the World Bank, the Three Seas is poaching on the preserves of the European Union institutions, most specifically the European Investment Bank. If this is an investment-led initiative where it's let's build this pipeline, let's build this train, the EU Investment Bank isn't going to like that. And the EU Investment Bank is absolutely huge. I looked up the total subscribed capital to the EU investment bank, it's nearly 250 trillion euro. It's an enormous operation. And if you go anywhere in Europe, you'll see stuff, buses, roads, sponsored by the EU. They have the flag everywhere. They're very, very insistent on promoting it. And the East, and, and the European investment funds are particularly important to developing countries. I remember when I grew up in Ireland, Ireland was close to being a developing country in the late 80s. It had developed a little bit in the 1990s, and the EU funds, you could just see them come into the country, building roads, building buses, and so on. And if you set up an alternative to the, to the European institutions, the European institutions will view that as a threat because bureaucrats and so on always view it as a threat. And what they will say, would be my guess, is if you guys want to pull together your capital outside of the collective pool in the EU and invest in roads and bridges, that's up to you. Don't expect that you're getting any money from us. Well, yeah, I mean, the EU might say something like that, but I I, I kind of disagree to a certain degree here because, look, um, Eastern European nations, we have seen over the last kind of increasingly over the last kind of five years or so, um, or so even 10 years, that Eastern European countries have been led by really uh, Hungary and Poland, have been at loggerheads with with the European centre based in Brussels. But, I, you know, I think with the support of the Germans, the Italians, the Spanish and the French on a lot of issues and especially social issues. Like the you know the kind of the progressive liberalism that seems to be non-negotiable in Western Europe and is increasingly laid down in law is just anathema to the Polish way of thinking of things. What do I mean? I mean on issues like abortion, gay rights on a you know a whole range of things for homosexual people. I mean on things like views of traditional families. All of these sort of things, the, the 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 Eastern Europeans are significantly to the right or, or or to the conservative end of the spectrum than their Western European allies, and we've seen this manifest itself in a whole range of ways. Whether it be Poland's effort to kind of break kind of liberal domination of the court system, is that fair? Or whether it be Viktor Orbán's extremely effective efforts to remove the, the 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 kind of the liberal dominance in 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 places like you know universities and the courts and the media etc and the eu really don't like this at all okay but here's the thing not only do they have their own you know these countries have their own views on social issues which i think is more for 
something like the Visegrad, four countries. They've also got their own geopolitical issues as well, which don't necessarily match up with the EU. You know, especially Germany, really what Germany would like is a, 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 a quiescent Central and Eastern Europe, okay, a becalmed Central and Eastern Europe. So it can get on with the task of turning incredibly cheap, relatively proximate Russian national Russian natural resources, whether those be whether that be oil, gas, coal, whether it be metals, whether it be minerals, whether it be timber, whatever, into high value added goods. And the Russians would like the same. They would like to get on with the with you know with the process of of, of converting their vast bounty of natural resources into cold hard cash and a lot of it so they they can in turn in turn develop partially by buying very high quality german goods okay and and, and using those to develop and if the eu really uh, as i've heard said many times and i think it, it it's really fair to say to a certain degree is german foreign policy by other means that kind of leaves countries like Poland out in the cold. That that that, that kind of leaves them away. That like they really have a completely different geopolitical imperative. They 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 want to be away from Russia and and kind of to a certain degree away from Germany as well. They they want to avoid being dominated by both. Can they do that? Well, maybe they can't. But if they are going to do it, it's going to be by developing organizations like the Three Cs to see if. Slowly, or it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen overnight. But, but if they get over the next ten years a few hundred billion of external investment that they can pool together with their own money and start building, you know, motorways and ports and electricity connectors and oil and gas pipelines that run on a north to south access axis, if they can continue their development, which they've done extremely well. I mean, they're going to overtake Britain in terms of standard of living in the next five to 10 years, if current trends continue, they're doing very well. So if they can continue that, if they can perhaps solve some of their demographic issues or at least break them, they can actually start developing a certain mass. And once you start getting these you know, logistics links, once you start increasing throughput, then that increases the, the kind of the incentive to cooperate even more. And that even greater cooperation leads to even greater trust which allows you to do even more trade and even more linkages. And slowly over time, you can get this virtuous circle. And maybe, eventually, they can form a genuine bloc. It's not going to be as powerful as the United States. It's not going to be as powerful as China because they're not going to have, you know, 350 or a billion people. But it could be an extremely rich and pretty powerful bloc right in the center of Europe. And guess what? The U.S. would love that. They would love to be able to inject their own like their own influence into this area to keep Germany and Russia apart, especially if US influence starts to wane in Western Europe, which it could well do. You and I have discussed that off air a few times. So I think it makes a lot of sense for Poland to do this. It's not an amazing, big and important structure at the minute, but it might be in 10, 15, 20 years time. It might be at least the the kind of the acorn that grows into the oak. But at the minute, you're right, it's very much an acorn. Macroeconomic black magic. We, we discussed recently on the podcast about the unusual growth situation in America. I think we were framing it in terms of American debt overhang and the enormous deficit that they were running relative to the fact that un unemployment is, is at record lows. I mean, they haven't seen these lows since the 60s. And actually, after that conversation, it really stuck in my mind. I said, "What? something's going on here. It is actually very, very strange. So I was thinking about it a bit, and I ended up writing an article from the New York Post on it. But basically, if you look at any indicator, any economic indicator, I did some Twitter threads about this. If you look at any economic indicator in the US that isn't GDP growth and isn't unemployment, they look terrible. We're talking about manufacturing PMI has been declining for, for I think it's been in decline for a couple of months. Services PMI is still showing some growth, but it's it's on the decline. It, yield curves are inverted. They're the kind of financial market signal that a recession is inbound. And yet unemployment is, is really low. And 
just to give some context, when we started to see, you know, inverted yield curve, manufacturing PMI slowing down, last last uh, cycle, so in 2008, uh, we, that was around September 2008, we were seeing fairly similar signals. In fact, some of the signals now are more dramatic than they were in September 2008. And in September 2008, the unemployment rate was rising. It was already at 6.1%, which while it's not very high in Europe, that's extremely high in America. You know, full employment in America is 42 4.3%. Right now we have like 3.8%. So as we said, crazy low unemployment. So the question is, why is it that everything is screaming recession except the two most important numbers, which are GDP growth and unemployment? Because at the end of the day, if unemployment is not going up, and even if GDP growth is a little bit sluggish, which it is now, but it's still growing, you don't have a recession. So the question is why? And last week or two weeks ago, or whenever we were discussing it, that gave me the hint. I said, well, it, that must be what's driving it. It must be the federal budget. The federal budget deficit is propping up the economy. And so I went and I dug into the statistics, and sure enough, it's true. The Inflation Reduction Act that was passed in August, I think it was signed into law in August of last year, is a big subsidies program. It's mainly green stuff, but it's, you know, $1 and six goes to actual manufacturing. So a mix between manufacturing and actual manufacturing and green stuff, green blob stuff. Blob stuff gets $6 for every every $1 that the manufacturing stuff's getting. This has led to a big and well-documented boom in manufacturing construction spending. And that's simply investment in the physical plants effectively for manufacturing. Now, I don't know what it is. Everyone's saying, oh, well, it's all in technological project projects and electronics. Yeah, that could be semiconductor factories. That could also be green solar panel factories. So not sure what it is, but ultimately it doesn't matter because all construction spending is going to do the same thing. It's going to hire construction workers to build things, to build buildings, factories, and so on. So this seems to be, according to the numbers I ran, propping up construction spending generally. Just to give some sense of it, manufacturing construction spending used to make up about 5% of total construction spending. It now makes up more than 10%, and we've never seen that before. So the manufacturing construction spending that's subsidized by this IRA spend it, by these IRA subsidies and tax breaks is juicing the construction market. And when you remove that subsidized investment that's taking place, you find the total construction spending is actually contracting, which will be a, a serious signal that the, uh, that the construction market is about to go into a downturn. And when you model it out, you see if you take away those subsidies, construction employment would be contracting. Now, look, all the, all the ones we talked about, the yield curve, the manufacturing PMI, services PMI, and so on, these are really good forward indicators of recessions. That's what they call them in economics and financial markets. Ones that give you a sense that a recession may be on the way when the immediate data isn't telling you that. Well, con contracting construction employment isn't a forward or leading indicator. It is an indicator of a recession. I don't think there's any contraction in serious contraction in construction employment that doesn't end in a recession. So in summary, what I think is happening is the IRA subsidies are propping up an almost lifeless American economy by keeping the construction sector chugging along, even as the rest of the economy is, is basically in recession or trying to go into, you know, tending into recession. And this is kind of like propping it up, like, like somebody holding up a, you know, a heavy object or something so that the other person can pass through. Now, the really interesting thing, and we can get into it shortly, is what this means for the election. Because I think that the IRA could have been in part planned to be, be passed into law this time last year, or August last year, and then you get two, two years of juice out of the subsidies and investment, and it could be propping up the American economy going into the 2024 election. Yeah, I was very happy to read your article in the New York Post because I think I'd sent you a message earlier in the week saying, like, is this normal, Philip? Like, I'm on Twitter and I read a lot of econ Twitter 
puzzlex.com posts, I suppose we should say now. And for months and months, not just recently, but like six months going on a year, I've been seeing the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates. That's always a sign that a recession is going to come because they increase interest rates until the economy rolls over and crushes inflation, essentially. The Treasury bond yield curve inverting, home prices starting to fall, mortgage rates starting to go up. As you said, like manufacturing services, PMIs falling, all of these things. I kept seeing these things constantly think, well, when's the recession going to come? The economy keeps growing. Like, why is it? And I think you might have struck on it. Like, it seems to me that it's good old-fashioned pump priming, essentially. Basically, you know, the government is running a really huge deficit. I mean, we discussed it, that it was pushing, it was well over 7%, I think, for 2023, which is an enormous sum when an economy is already growing. And it seems clear that what they're doing is that at least part of that is going into this Inflation Reduction Act, which is being seen itself in part in construction activity, especially in manufacturing construction. Isn't that a good thing, though, Philip? I mean, the whole point of the Inflation Reduction Act was to spend money now, which in theory would be inflationary, by increasing the amount of money in circulation in the economy. But over the long run, increase your productive capacity as a nation, increase the amount of goods that you yourself can produce, and therefore reduce long-term inflation. But also, by the by, give give yourself a little bit more independence from the Chinese, the Chinese manufacturing base, and that itself has strategic implications. And, you know, hopefully at the same time, you know, bring back some of those well-paying, pretty secure, blue-collar American jobs that were lost, in, in my view, so foolishly from, you know, 1985 to 2015, that kind of, you know, 20, 30-year period. I mean, isn't this a good thing? I, I think it's pretty hard to argue against industrial policy. We don't know the mix of the investment that's taking place. When you look at the at the manufacturing construction that's taking place, it's kind of broken down into kind of these industry groups, which are are so vague, they don't really tell you much. As I said, it was the, the stuff that's taking place is in the kind of electronics, et cetera, basket but you know that could be a solar panel or it could be a microchip i don't know uh, i did see some anecdotal evidence of chips chip uh, manufacturing plants going up can't be a bad thing right the one question i'd raise look i'm i'm more so highlighting it from the point of view of there's something kind of a little funny going on with macroeconomic policy in the u.s generally speaking the central bank and the government are supposed to be working hand in glove but what the Biden administration is actually doing is it's working against central bank policy. The the fiscal policy and the monetary policy are doing two different things. And uh, I guarantee you, if the politics were different, shall we say, in America, everybody will be pointing this out. This is bad macroeconomic management, et cetera, et cetera. And no one's calling it out. So it's just interesting in that sense. Now, do, am I a huge proponent of mainstream economic policy? No, not really. So like, I'm not terribly bothered by this. The inflation's coming down anyway. I've always thought that the that the fiscal and monetary having to work in sync to defeat, to defeat the bad inflation monster was always a little bit over-exaggerated. I think the inflationary potential of fiscal policy is exaggerated. But ultimately, we don't really know the quality of the investments from a purely kind of playing into the mainstream paradigm point of view, you know, the central bank and the government are working across purposes and it's not being commented on. That's kind of interesting. The last thing I'd say is if you're building these things with a zombie economy, if you've got a lifeless economy and you're going and you're shocking it and the body is kind of twitching around, which is kind of what's happening at the moment, and you're building these new manufacturing plants, and let's say some of them are, are the real deal, when the building is done, when the cons- the heavy construction investment is done, my guess is your economy falls into recession. Now, it's not great to start a business at the beginning of a recession, right? So if you've just built your nice factory, you've just built your nice factory and you're starting to produce your goods, and then the construction dries up because the factories are all built and you get a recession. It's going to be much harder for you as a company to stay afloat in that environment. So 
I do kind of, I don't want to question it too much because look, you take what you can get. Politics is politics. Fiscal policy is annoying. Convincing people to do manufacturing. Industrial policy is annoying. But this wouldn't have been the idea. If I was running the American God's plan and we didn't have any political considerations, I'd probably say, yeah, maybe we should try and do those investments at the bottom of the cycle. We'll get cheaper prices. We'll get cheaper construction prices. And then everything will be ready and built for the uptick in the cycle. But look, you take what you can get. Quick question before we move on from this topic. When I, I like to barbecue in the summer, right? And when the coals of the barbecue start cooling down a little bit, but I still want to throw a couple of steaks on there and I want to get it nice and hot, I can kind of like fan those kind of dying embers until they get kind of red hot again. But in doing that, they get cold even faster than they would have ordinarily. Is it kind of the same with the... the am I way off the, the, the kind of track here. Is it the same with the economy where there's been so many indicators that the economy kind of wants to wants to roll over and go into recession, that the the stock market wants to come off this peak. But through running a gargantuan fiscal def budget deficit and investing in construction of manufacturing, the government's kind of like fanning the last of the of the of the flames. Could it be that by doing this, when the recession finally does come, it's it, it's kind of like harder than it would have ordinarily been or, or, or more difficult to pull out of than it ordinarily would have been? Or do economies not work like that? I mean, you know, the Austrian economists will chime in here with their kind of half right points. I always think Austrians, when they make unique points, they're always half right. And they'll say malinvestment. On Austrian business cycle theory, I think there's something to be said for it, which is that malinvestments, you know, investments that haven't been purely market oriented, which is exactly what these subsidies are, will come under a vast amount of strain in the recession. And that's, I think, what I've just said. You'll get these subsidized, propped up manufacturing things that already have to kind of do a hard job because they have to compete with alternatives in, for example, China with lower labor costs and so on. And then you're throwing them into a recession. So there is, and of course, what does that mean at a macro level? It means you could have a higher wave of defaults than you otherwise would. That's perfectly possible. So I think we can give one cheer for the Austrian business cycle theory and raise that as a possibility. Over a barrel. Yeah, boy, oh boy, the Biden administration looks like the first administration since the 1970s to experience uh, geopolitical, serious, potentially targeted geopolitical attacks, in a sense. So the oil price futures just recently climbed climbed above $90, $90 a barrel again. Obviously, they're they're lower than they were after the Ukraine war, but they, they've climbed back up to $90 a barrel. And Saudi Arabia and Russia appear to be planning to push them up to $100 a barrel. Now, again, not as bad as they were after the war, but with low economic growth around the world, including even in China, but especially in America and the West, $100 a barrel oil is a bit of a political nightmare. Because people are people are in a relatively stagnant economy. We've already had this inflation, which people say, oh, inflation's coming down. Yeah, but we lost living standards during that inflation. Like the prices are still high relative to wages. So after all that kind of cost of living pain and everything like that, we're going to see oil prices apparently if they maintain control over it, and I think they can, unless the economy falls into a serious recession, we're going to see $100 a barrel in oil. Now, it's pretty hard not to see this as a political move on the part of the Saudis and the Russians. And with the Russians, it doesn't really surprise me. There's no, there's probably no secret that Moscow doesn't really want Joe Biden to succeed in the presidential election if, for no other reason, Donald Trump has announced that he is willing on day one to end the war in Ukraine. So that makes complete sense. The Saudis are a bit more of a wild card. Now, obviously, we've covered the Saudi Arabian situation in depth on the show before. It's one of the most fascinating developments in world politics and economics, in a sense, that I can remember, really, at least one of the most fascinating. Saudi Arabia have, as we've pointed out before, thrown their lot, their lot in increasingly with the BRICS, and they've been shunning the Biden administration for a variety of reasons. Well, the piper is about to be paid. Without the Saudis on board, you don't have any control over the global oil price. And if the Saudis want, and the Russians are on board, but clearly the Russians are on board with this, uh, if the Saudis want to, they can just say, okay, well, we're going to jack up oil prices prior to an election. And of course, if you know anything about American politics, gasoline prices, gas prices, as they call them there, are a major 
electoral issue. And every anyone who knows anything about American politics knows this much more so than in the UK or in Europe or anywhere else, because Americans drive big cars. They like cheap gas, as they say. So it's it's a really interesting it's a really interesting situation. Yeah, I, I actually think it's probably a little bit less political than the, than you do. To be perfectly frank, I actually just think that both Saudi Arabia and Russia think that oil should be at a hundred dollars a barrel for their kind of their own reasons. Like they, you know, they both have budgets to fund, and especially the Russians with the oil price cap. The higher the higher the price of oil goes, the more ridiculous the price cap looks, basically. But, you know, certainly the Saudis as well have a huge modernization program that they need to be able to fund, as well as, you know, the extremely generous social safety net, perhaps different from the way ours are run in the West, but still a whole range of social payments. So I think they would just both like to have oil at $100 a barrel. Also, you know, the OPEC system runs basically by trying to figure out the optimal price of oil for OPEC members to be able to profit the most because, you know, to push the price of oil up, they need to reduce the amount they actually sell. So where is that kind of fair value? And I I just personally think that, you know, the Russians and the Saudis have decided that $100 a barrel is about right. They want to keep it there. They feel that a global recession is coming. So they're cutting back on supply to get ahead of that curve because, as you and I both know, you, you know, you tend to find that when a recession hits, the the price of oil snaps back extremely quickly. So, you know, I think it's more about that. And the political side of things really is they no longer care about pleasing, in Russia's case, Western Europe, and in Saudi's case, the US. The Saudis have well and truly fallen out with this kind of democratic regime. That's very obvious. The Russians have clearly fallen out with Western Europe, so they no longer care. They no longer have any other considerations but their own, and they think that $100 a barrel would be fairly reasonable. I think the big news that everybody seems to be missing on this, I I haven't read this point made anywhere in the media at all, is the fact that this isn't an OPEC cut. It's not an OPEC plus cut. It's, It's Riyadh and Moscow working bilaterally together, independently of OPEC, essentially to set the price of oil together. They, they they have made an agreement together. They don't need OPEC. They don't need anybody else. They're just working bilaterally, and they're essentially dictating the global price of oil. They've both agreed to voluntarily cut back on the amount of oil that they're pumping to raise the overall price. I think that's the big story, the cooperation between Riyadh and Moscow to essentially dictate the oil market globally. And I don't see anybody making that point. Okay, so first of all, I don't think what we're saying is mutually exclusive. I think you're absolutely right. They want $100 oil barrel, oil prices. Russia, because they want to firm up their their fiscal situation, although the, the reports of that have been greatly exaggerated. And Saudi Arabia, I'm not sure what they're doing. I'm sure they always just want high oil prices for their investment funds and so on. But generally speaking, I think of it like usually OPEC, and we'll get back to your point on, which is very good, on Moscow and Riyadh in a minute. But usually OPEC kind of, as you say, they have a fundamental setting of the price that they want to do that's based on purely economic considerations. And then there's a political layer on top of that. But the political layer often overcomes the economic fundamentals. I mean, the political layer just sometimes trumps it, you know, like when Saudi Arabia may or may not have driven down the the oil price in the run-up to Obama's re-election. I mean, that that was the thing. And, and you know, there's various ways that can happen. You don't know. There could be a deal. There could be, you know, just an implicit kind of like, we need to get the Americans on side for X, Y, and Z. So the, the politics can sometimes override the economics, and that's just clearly not the case anymore. And I think that's a huge development. On the second point, of the Moscow Riyadh thing. That's what makes me suspicious that the politics here might be a little bit more intense. As you say, I mean, we've already said about Moscow, Trump said he'll end the Ukraine war. I mean, that's obvious. And and as you've said, Riyadh has completely fallen out with the Democrats. I don't know if relations would be any better under Trump or under whatever whoever turns out to be the GOP nominee. I don't know. I think some of the, the rifts there have been have been worse. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Saudis are thinking, well, we might as well give someone else a shot because this has been pretty horrible. The last thing I'd, I'd just try and highlight is the response to this that we've seen in America. It's, it's 
it's a bit odd, to be honest. I, I saw this quote from a, an analyst in DC in the Financial Times report on it. And it says, quote, the Saudis don't have a lot of friends in Washington right now. There's absolutely the risk that they start to become exhibit A if Washington wants to blame someone for high pump prices or a slowing economy again, end quote. Sorry, what? So they're going to jack the prices. Riyadh's going to jack the price. Yeah, we get that. They've said they're going to do it. It's going to become an electoral issue. Yep, as we've just said. And then Biden's going to turn around and go up on a podium and go, this is Saudi Arabia's fault. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) Who cares? Voters don't care. They're going to be like, you're in charge. Do your job. Like, that's how Americans view the energy situation. They view, whether they're right or wrong about it, they view the government the administration in charge, as having influence over energy prices. And the reason they think that is because various administrations make that promise, whether whether it's by drill, baby, drill, and energy independence and so on, or whether it's by diplomatic negotiations to drive the oil price down on the global markets. Either way, Joe, Joe Public in America thinks that energy prices are the remit of the government. Sorry, if Biden turns around the podium and goes, I'm sorry, it's Saudi Arabia's fault. We've fallen out with them. People are just going to go laugh, okay? And so I can't believe that anyone in DC like doesn't understand that. And so I just think that like I really get the sense from all the news reports and everything I read on the US-Saudi relationship that it just hasn't, it's sunk in, I'm sure, with like really smart people who like are specialists in it and like that's their remit. I'm sure they understand this breakdown in relations is really bad for us. But I don't think that's filtered down to the non specialists in Washington. I just don't get any sense. I don't think that like the current US president can't see into his mind, but I don't think he understood six months ago that there might be a major problem with the electoral cycle from this fallout in Saudi relations. But I I mean, will the penny drop at some point or will we continue to kind of get this like as the kids say cope? I, I don't I don't know. Yeah, I agree hundred percent with that. It you know as you said earlier on, if you you know if you take the kind of political veneer off, i.e., the influence of the West, then OPEC is left literally with its own self-interest. You know, there's no there's no longer any way to push them or nudge them one way or the other. You know, it, you know, if you break off ties, then well, it's what's good for me. Like, why why should I set up my economy? Like, why should I price my major source of income? You know, to benefit you know, your re-election campaign. Well, if we're friends and I get other stuff besides, then maybe, yeah, maybe as the most powerful member of OPEC, I can kind of nudge OPEC in one direction. Maybe as the swing oil producer, you know, I can help you out because it's the kind of the midterm elections or the or whatever. But now that we're not friends, now that I don't get anything, now that I get kind of harangued, you know, now that I'm buddying up with China, now that China is my major trading partner for oil, like, you know, your re-election campaign is none of my concern. Your economy is none of my concern. The well-being of your people is none of my concern. And we might be moving away from oil. We might be moving towards a, you know, a, you know, the green energy revolution. But for now, oil is still really important. And 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 let me say, if it's a hundred dollars a barrel, if if they can manage to keep it high, you know, maybe not a hundred dollars a barrel, but fairly high into a recession it will be incredibly painful i don't think they're doing it deliberately to inflict pain i just don't think they care anymore i don't you know like if you know it's it's like trying to change uh, north korea's behavior because you know you might sanction them well you've you've done all the sanctions you can possibly do you've isolated them to the extent that they possibly can so you no longer have that cudgel to beat them with well Maybe it's getting a bit like that with uh, Saudi Arabia. You know, I mean, there are still things that the US could do if they wanted to be really unfriendly, but I'm not sure they can afford to do that either. So I think it's worth paying attention to. I also think the the continuing effort of or, or the continuing relationship between Moscow and Riyadh in terms of being willing to voluntarily act bilaterally on their own to set the market price of oil is something important that's important because Let's you know. Let's not forget. Like six years ago, Russia wasn't even a member of OPEC or like OPEC plus. There was no cooperation at all, none. And now they're acting bilaterally outside even OPEC. I, you know, I think that this is really a sign of how things have changed. Yet another sign of how things have changed. And I'm sure we'll continue following this on the podcast. 
This is this this is what they say, you know, communists, rated subversion, etc. etc. The oppression 